to the Money Talks year-end special. You know, we look back on 2023 and there's so many major stories and we're going to hear from Victor and Ozzy and Michael what their choice for story of the year is, whether we're talking markets, real estate, interest rates. You know, personally, I'm looking forward to also hearing some excerpts from our top interviews of the year. We're going to be hearing from Carol Roth, from Dr. Brian Day, from Judith Curry, Leo Tigra. I think you're going to really enjoy that. Personally, though, I also think that I have trouble coming up with my biggest story of the year because there is so much. I mean, there's the obvious choices like the war in Ukraine, the surprise terrorist attack by Hamas on Israeli civilians, including women and children. And that, by the way, for me, the reaction in Canada to that, the level of anti-Semitism is my shocking story of the year, including in academia. We've seen it. We've seen it in labor unions, Victoria City Council. Look at the mayor of Victoria, along with the mayor of Calgary, can't bring themselves to condemn the outright brutality, the viciousness of the Hamas attack. And much like the president of Harvard, maybe we should call her the plagiarist in chief, when they weren't denying the full extent of the atrocities, they wanted context, context for raping women and making that a weapon of war and murdering babies. And they did join way too many members of the Federal Liberal Caucus and Cabinet. I mean, I was shocked that it took Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie two months to condemn the Hamas attack. I mean, there are serious revelations, by the way, of anti-Semitism in the Green Party, too. Hate everywhere. And that's not too strong a word. And it's been imported to Canada. And it's on the short list of the biggest stories of the years that immigration policies have clearly imported the hatred from halfway across the world along with values that are completely foreign to most Canadians. And there's no benefit whatsoever to our country. I mean, questions have to be asked. Changes need to be made. And I'm not suggesting it's not complex or it will be easy. But come on, changes need to be made. There's so many stories, though, and so many other areas that are top billing kind of stories in 2023. What about the arrival of chat GPT and main artificial intelligent models going mainstream? Of course, there were the wildfires. I think everybody who lives in the Northwest Territories or Nova Scotia impacted in the interior of BC or even in Hawaii are thinking that's the top story of the year. And no wonder. In the world of entertainment, it seems like Taylor Swift is the winner hands down. How about the lack of a family doctor or access to care? I'm sure that tops the list for the families of the 17,032 who died waiting for surgery and diagnostic scans. It seems like 223 may be. The year, finally, when the majority of Canadians understand that the access to a waiting list is not the same as access to health care. Now, of course, for many, the top stories are always political. You know, like the, uh, despite the relentless parade of evidence regarding Chinese interference in Canada, you know, in politics, in society, well, we still don't have our public independent, independent, the key word, inquiry. I mean, there's so much more in the drama for politics, but it's going to get well covered in other places. But I also like to think that there's so much more to review than what happens in politics. I mean, politics is an area where decency, respect, integrity continue to take a back seat in the pursuit of power. Instead, I want to focus on a story that impacts all of us, but especially mid to lower income Canadians. And that's the rising cost of living, not necessarily inflation, which measures rise in the, uh, the rise in the price of a basket of goods and services, but rather the cost of things we buy. It may have already risen and now stayed static. That's the case in so many areas. But we look at the escalating price of food, energy, rents, along with interest rates. It's putting huge stress on Canadians. And it's not just the rising prices this year. It's a cumulative increase over the last three years. That's the story. Consider the cost of groceries over the last three years is up over 20%. And in some categories, much, much more than that. Transportation costs up over 15% since January 221. And again, in some areas, some ways, much more than that. Well, shelter costs are a good example. Average across the country are 13.5%. But come on, that's across the country. The prices in major urban centers for rent, for example, are much higher. In some points, you've seen this huge accumulation of property tax increases. The cost it is for insurance, the list is a long one. But keep in mind, the inflation number, the rate of increase, it is going to slow. I mean, for example, if you've got a one-bedroom apartment in Vancouver costing $2,900, it has been that way for a few months. So they'll report the month-to-month inflation as way down, but prices aren't. Uh, we're looking at mortgage rates coming down. 
but that doesn't make them affordable for someone who took out a mortgage in, say, 2019 to 20 at much lower rates, because we've got 1.1 million Canadians renewing their mortgage estimated in this coming year, 224, and the same amount in 225 at rates that will be significantly higher. And we're talking about, say, on average, for every $100,000 of mortgage, it'll cost you about 250 per month. And according to the latest numbers, well, we still have the cost of living increasing, although it's mostly in mortgage rates and things like that. So we'll have to see. But the bottom line is this. The majority of Canadians are experiencing anxiety. It's been a difficult time financially, and they're forcing changes in their lifestyle. Some fear they won't be able to keep their home. That's why it's my top story, because I feel for them. On Money Talks, we have put the spotlight on every step of the way, from the impact of COVID lockdowns to the inflationary policies of the government, the Bank of Canada, on the more vulnerable. But I got to tell you this, leave you with this, not that cheerful, but the financial turmoil is not over. We've got record sovereign debt, geopolitical tensions that are heating up, the relentless debasement of the currency in terms of purchasing power, climate agendas, impact on the cost of fossil fuels, and more. Simply put, our goal on Money Talks is to protect you financially. And choosing my top story of the year as the rising cost of living just reflects that. Hey, just a reminder that we do have the World Outlook Conference, which will be focusing on these issues, how to protect yourself, especially the declining purchasing power of your dollar. Well, we'll be doing that February 2nd and 3rd. All the details you can find at mikesmoneytalks.ca, where you can also sign up for five minutes with Mike. It's the free uh, three times a week, I think, email blast with little facts and figures, that kind of stuff. A lot of people are really enjoying it, and I appreciate that. Uh, just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and click on one of the little tabs. I think it's free e-blast service. Anyways, click it out there. I hope you do join us. We've got so much more planned for you. We've got all those interviews. I've got Michael. Uh, I've got Victor. I've got Ozzy. All coming up on Money Talks. When I look back in 2023, for Money Talks, one of the things that really jumps out is the number of really high-quality interviews we've been able to conduct. Anybody interested in becoming better informed, being challenged in some of the things they think, boy, have you ever come to the right place? So today I thought we would feature maybe snippets from, let's say, four of them on hot topics. But just to give you a flavor, and if you want more, then you simply go to the archives and you can click on the full interview. So I'm going to start with Dr. Judith Curry one of the best-known climate scientists, but blessed, best known because she was ostracized in the climate community for the crime of actually questioning some of the science. And it's in a fascinating little clip here as she describes how it became politicized, the whole climate science agenda, right from the get-go. Policy cart has been way out in front of the scientific horse from the very beginning of all this. I mean, back in 1992, we had an international climate treaty, the UN Framework Convention on Climate mm -hmm. Change, to prevent dangerous anthropogenic um, warming by eliminating fossil fuel emissions. This was before we had any idea what was going on with the climate, not to mention the socioeconomic consequence of attempting this, you know, on short time horizons. So, you know, the UN put out, you know, frame this as a global problem. We need a global solution. And in order to push this forward, we need a global consensus of scientists. So the IPCC was, you know, mandated to find a consensus about dangerous human-caused climate change. They basically manufactured a consensus on all this, you know, under the direction, request, insistence of their bosses, <laughs> you know, the UN. So we ended up with this very narrow framing of the problem completely ignored the role of natural climate variability, assumed that all warming um, was bad, um, mm -hmm. completely ignoring the impacts, um, and focusing only on one policy response. So <laughs> this very, very narrow framing of this colossally complex, uncertain, and ambiguous problem, which has brought us to the silliness <laughs> in this whole issue that we see today. 
I, I would think, though, I want to just reemphasize your point that does, seems to get overlooked. When they presented the problem, they didn't have the scientific backing, you know, to elaborate. But they only considered one policy solution. To me, that's, uh, you know, so damning. But a lot of people don't understand that. It wasn't an either or. We could have had a lot of policy choices, at least to debate, but we weren't debating at that point. We still aren't debating, you know. And I just think that's, you can drive a truck through uh, that. But I, I want to come back to the IPCC because I don't think people appreciate, and I'm saying, uh, I'm sitting on the outside, but I've read the reports, and the first thing that jumped out is which politician wrote it. Now, that may be a glib way of saying it, but I think people are shocked when they find out that final let's take action report uh, isn't written by scientists. It's written by bureaucrats, you know, who are aligned with the politicians. It's not a scientific document. Okay. Um, in the Working Group 1 report on the physical basis of climate change, if you go into the bowels of the report, there is some good science. Okay. Mm -hmm. Not enough, but there is some good science. Um, the summary for policymakers, again, is essentially written by the policymakers, um, and they cherry-pick things. And if you only look since 1970, you know, this has gotten worse, but if they forget to tell you that if you look back to 1930, things were worse then, you know, that kind of cherry-picking. Mm -hmm. Um, and the IPC, even the summary for policymakers is relatively tame. I mean, it's cherry picked, it's slanted, it's spun. But then when you hear the UN officials to talk, talk about it, you know, code red, we're on the highway to hell, existential threat, you know, <laughs> these things that, you know, if you really dig into it, you know, it's hard. Is, is this really all that dangerous? Um, you know, they're spinning uh, in their statements. And then, of course, this gets amplified by the media. And then what, what the um, public consumes is just a bunch of political spin. And, and I mean, obviously it's successful, but when I see school children out there, you know, uh, protesting climate change, and I don't think they could go one minute with me, but that's how I feel about most politicians. I could give me one minute, I'll undress them, but they, but they know so little about it. And there's so many big issues that you can drive a truck through. And I think their lack of sophistication, just, you know, I talk about this all the time because it brings it down to a level. You didn't need any sophistication to know you need backup for renewable energy. That takes nothing but... <laughs> The sun doesn't shine every day. That's all it would have taken. But I think that's representative of their thought process. Well, no, it, all this energy stuff, I mean, it's being voted in by politicians. Yeah. Um, say New York now has a mandate, a very aggressive mandate to go to 100% renewable energy on a very short time scale. Okay. Uh, New York, I mean, they have some decent hydropower, you know, which helps. But they're aggressively getting rid of their... Not just their coal, not just their gas, but also their nuclear. Okay. I guess I should it. say, do they not know where Germany is? You know, didn't didn't <laughs> okay, Germany but, feature that okay. movie first? I know. Okay. So I sit on a committee of the New York System Reliability Corporation, something like that, mm -hmm. to um, extreme weather events. So we've been putting together some stress test case studies you know, based on historical data and, and this, that, and the other about, you know, like, oh, <laughs> you know, 17 days when the wind doesn't blow and it's the middle of winter, where's your solar? <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. and the temperatures are really, really cold. Now what are you doing? I'm praying that New Jersey has a lot of nuclear power that they can transmit into New York. Um, you, know, you know, like it, it just makes no sense. But, but I'm on a committee with engineers you know, and they, they sort of get it. But the point is the politicians aren't asking the engineers, <laughs> you know, what they should be doing. They're just making this political decisions and these mandates. And the engineers have to figure out how to, you know, <laughs> provide electricity on a re reliable basis and keep the, you know, frequency. Wind and solar are terrible for, free, you know, Intermittency is one thing, but they really screw up the frequency control because yes. uh, they're asynchronous and, and they need to add all sorts of asynchronous converters and you need to add all the stuff to it. And it gets really, really expensive to do. And nobody has demonstrated that you can do 100%, you know, wind and solar based electricity system. 
you know, places like Iceland and Costa Rica, they have lots of hydropower and geothermal. Okay, that's how they can be 100% renewable. But in the absence of those kind of resources, you know, wind and solar are not going to cut it. So, I mean, and South Australia is farthest along of anybody in terms of trying to do this. And I've been following closely as to what they're doing. There's a number of articles uh, on, on my blog, Climate Etc., Judith curry.com by transmission engineers and a, yeah. and a grid operator from New Zealand who's been writing the articles on my blog about how and why this isn't working. So, I mean, this is, I mean, it's a it's political decision. It's, it's misguided in so many ways and it's introducing so many risks, not just to I mean, our whole society depends on electricity, everything yeah. that we do. Okay, and this is, if we're adding instability and higher costs into our electric utility system, we're damaging our economy, we're reducing our vulnerability, we're increasing our vulnerability to extreme weather events and so on and so forth. I mean, for what? <laughs> yeah. in, a, in, in a futile attempt, to slow down the slow creep of global warming. It just makes absolutely no sense. Time now for the quotes of the year. I say quotes because I got a few. I'm going to go with three. And I want to say up front, by the way, I'm not including that shocking message from the senior Hamas leader, Dr. Ghazi Hamad, thanking Canada. No, I'm not including with that. And with that said, for our Money Talks Year in Review, our selections are obviously influenced by areas and opinions that I don't think are regularly featured, let's say, in the mainstream. And I think they should be. I th you know, as you probably know, if you're a regular listener, I'm a big time believer in free speech, airing ideas, poking holes in them sometimes, whatever it is, I think we're the better off for us. And I think all three of these quotes provide a lot of food for thought. So on the government response to COVID, on the Bill Maher show, NYU Stern School of Business professor Scott Galloway stated in quotes, I was on the board of my kids' school during COVID. I wanted a harsher lockdown policy. In retrospect, I was wrong. The damage to kids of keeping them out of school longer was greater than the risk. But here's the bottom line. We were doing our best. To which historian Muriel Blave responded, stating, This is exactly why there should never have been any censorship in the first place. Because the fact that they were wrong was predictable and predicted because there is nothing like pure science, because science is about debate and disagreement, not about imposing one's view and silencing critics. The people who realized authorities were wrong early on were never allowed to speak out and were vilified as anti-science, fringe scientists, or the ultimate insult, Trump supporters. As I said, not something you heard too often in the mainstream media. Next up, before there was controversy over the testimony of the president's you know, of, I, I think it was MIT, University of Pennsylvania, and Harvard, about the anti-Semitic demonstrations on campus and the threats that were uttered on campus. It put the whole, what we, I guess it's called the woke agenda at university campuses in the, uh, in the spotlight. Well, before that ever happened, Philip Carl Salzman, Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at McGill, Senior Fellow at the Frontier Center for Public Policy, Fellow at the Middle East Forum, President of Scholars for Peace in the Middle East, warned, in quotes, The foremost advocates of racism and sexism in Canada are our universities, no longer individuals treated as individuals according to their achievements, potential, and merit. Rather, under the label diversity, inclusion, and equity, Students, professors, staff, and administrators are treated in admissions, funding, hiring, and benefits, not according to their ability to do the assigned job, but according to their sex, race, sexuality, ethnicity, and disability. I think those issues, as I say, food for thought, are finally being discussed. And finally, in a damning smack in the face of all those whose priority is climate change, and I respect that's the case. I mean, some people think the environment is, some people have other issues, and for many people, climate change is their number one issue. But also, it's a damning smack in the face for those people, but also validation for those who are irked by the relentless virtue signaling of the federal government. In recent testimony by the liberal, liberal appointed climate commissioner, Jerry DeMarco, in quotes, we haven't had any reductions. We're up 14% since 1990. 
All the other G7 nations are down in their emissions, some by quite a bit. So there's no track record of Canadian emission reductions. There's only been a track record of increases in greenhouse gas emissions. I've been kind of interested how little those reports have got in terms of public attention or media attention. I mean, some could say, I think very pervasively, this has been the number one issue in Canada, at least for the government, and yet no progress at all. Wow. Michael Levy joins me now in our year in review. Mike, first of all, happy new year coming up. Hope everything is terrific, but I wanted to pick your brain for, you know, you're watching on a daily basis what's going on in the financial markets, economics, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Still, what jumps out at you as you kind of think, okay, this is my top story of the year? Well, my my top story, and we've talked about it all year, Mike, is the fact that uh, the inflationary cycle and stories and impact of inflation throughout the year. Basically, Canada's inflation rate uh, was 8.1% in the summer of 2022. That's only 16 months ago. We're down to 3.1% this past November. And, uh, you know, the indications are, Mike, is that the Bank of Canada is going to start to ease up and maybe start to pair interest rates a little bit. And that becomes a conundrum because are they and is that the signal that we're getting from the Bank of Canada? Um, the bank, as, 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 as recent as a few days ago, says, uh, Tiff Macklin said the bank is willing to resume rate hikes if warranted. You don't hear that from the U.S. The U.S., they think they have basically got it licked. Rates are coming down. You don't hear that from Great Britain. The Bank of England in November uh, are bolstering bets that they are going to cut rates early next year. The Federal Reserve, uh, one of their governors, Thomas Barkin, says central bank nicely positioned amid inflation retreat. And then you've got, and then you've got Canada, where Derek Holt of Scotia Bank and Mike, you and I have talked of him so many times. Indeed, there could still be trying times ahead. Inflation is still too high, particularly for food and housing and elevated interest rates. The medicine used to fight inflation are inflicting severe pain on homeowners when they renew their mortgages. Well, that to me is not indicating that there's a strong resolve when people feel confident that the Bank of Canada is going to be able to do the same in their quest to lower rates. I don't know, Mike. Well, it's still the big thing is how weak does the economy get? That's going to be equaling how low rates get. You know, weak economy equals lower rates or gives them that opportunity. But that distinction between us and the U.S. is an important one. Uh, us and, you know, Europe's the same. You know, I, I think that mortgage rate story, you know, when people come to renew, I said, like, at the outset, 1.1 million mortgages coming due in 224, 1.1 million mortgages got to get renewed in 225. Well, regardless of where the rates are, I don't think anyone's thinking they're going back to those original rates, you know, one and a half to two and a half. People are going to be paying more, impacting, of course, consumer spending, impacting overall economic growth. So, yeah, I, I think the road for Canada, even though they're not talking the same way as the states, is probably uh, smoother to lower something there because this economy is not going anywhere. I mean, it's been flatlining for six to eight months. Well, it has, Mike, but I just think it's uh, too premature to judge that inflation is down or the rate of mm. inflation is coming down, uh, this time pointing to several factors adding to price pressures. That's including a weak Canadian dollar. Remember, we import so much and our dollar is not strong rapid wage growth in Canada, which adds to inflation, and high levels of immigration that are pushing up shelter costs. That is not a recipe on its own for the bank to aggressively step in and lower interest rates. Yeah, think, think of that conundrum, eh? That, okay, so if we lower rates, but the states doesn't, just as an example, that's, a, you know, it, it impacts our currency. So it's that juxtaposition with the U.S. And you're right about the imports too have to be consideration. It just reminds us how many factors are in play at this moment. And, you know, it's a, it's a difficult time. But, uh, yeah, I think going forward, you look at 224, interest rates have a chance to be the story of 224, especially on the mortgage side. Well, let me just give you, I think they call it a Hobson's choice, Mike, but um, there's a big risk to keep borrowing costs high in an economy that's already stagnating. 
they could tip already strained businesses and consumers into a deeper and longer slump. And yeah. I mean, I don't want to go away with that pall hanging over us into the new year, but there's a reality here. And the reality is Canada has not kept up in so much of the way we've done it. Look at immigration, look at uh, our um, non-welcoming of new businesses, new ventures to come into Canada, look at our fight against the oil and, well, the energy business, and that's where so much Canadian revenue comes from. I think there's a whole other story here, and it's not just, is the bank going to lower rates next year? Absolutely. I mean, there's so many variables in play. That's what makes it difficult here. Mike, I hope you go out. uh, wish you a very happy new year, and we'll talk to you next year. Very, very happy new year to you and your family, Mike. One of the things we've been talking about on Money Talks right from the beginning is the Great Reset Agenda. At first, it was vilified as being a conspiracy theory. Then it became far too obvious. I enjoyed my interview with Carol Roth, who's just written the book about the Great Reset, talking about that whole build back better mantra that certainly uh, went across all of the Western nations. One of the things that is also somewhat conspiratorial in theory, but not really that I think underpins what we're talking about is this concept of a new financial world order or a new world order. And that you know sounds like way off the charts. Like, what are you talking mm-hmm. about? Um, it's very much based in history. You know, right now, you know, the, the U.S. has been at the center of the global financial economy for about 80 years. But before us, it was the British. And before the British, it was the Dutch. And so you know, these things do go in cycles. And if you're a student of history, you can see that we are at least sort of late stage in the cycle. At the same time, you have people like President Biden who's talking about this openly. There is a group in the United States called the Business Roundtable, which is the CEOs of all the major U.S. corporations, and they get together to talk about ideas and enact policy ideas and reforms and whatever. And uh, he had a, a speech with them on March 21st of 2022. You can find this on the White House's website where he says, there's a change that happens about every three to four generations there's going to be a new world order out there and we've got to lead it. So this this is not something, again, like you said with Klaus Schwab publishing the book, that this is like a hidden thing. It's really history repeating. And then the people who are the most elite in the world recognizing it and figuring out what they they want to do. And that's where, where I kind of go with this is why is this happening? If you're elite and well-connected, you hold power, you hold money, all of this, you know, you know that that stakes are shifting financially. Are you going to just sort of let this all play out and hope that it works out for you and your buddies? Or are you proactively going to try to make sure that it does work out for you? And I don't know, Mike, which do you think is going to happen there? From sort of every direction, we're getting this you will owe nothing thing a situation. You've got the government and the central banks that are making it harder for you to retain wealth. You've got these bad actors and, you know, the WEF, the UN, other big businesses that are making it it harder. And then you've also got big technology who, you know, a handful of companies that are sort of acting as de facto governments in and of themselves that are basically renting your life back to you as a service or in some cases, you know, helping with government interference. You know, one of the things is the Freedom Convoy in Canada, you know, the fact that that they were raising money on a U.S. platform and the Canadian government came to them and said, shut it down and shut down those those donations is staggering. Uh, The book is called, I want to remind people, you will own nothing. Your war with a new financial world order. And one of the things I said is unique is you talk about, and obviously we can't do justice to that here. That's why you write a book and all the work that goes into it. (laughs) But I want to give people flavors of what, why they should go out and have a look because uh, there is a new financial world order. And the other side is how do you actually fight back? How do you protect yourself here? Can you give me just a couple of samples of uh, the challenge we're facing and maybe one or two of the things that we might want to keep in mind in in, uh, protecting ourselves? Retraining yourself to not depend so much on cash in the form that it is and to think about things like precious metals, to put more money into homes and perhaps it's not in the neighborhood you're in now, but maybe in a, one that's a little bit more suppressed 
to, to look at other ways that you can make sure that you're preserving not only that value, because we know the governments are overspending and, and taking away our purchasing power, but also just to be able to have some medium of exchange or maybe some barter system that is outside of the normal um, scenario where the, the central banks and the governments can interfere with. And I know, again, that sounds a little preppery or whatnot, but these are real things that are going on. And the analogy I like to use is that if your house is on fire, it's a really bad time to, to have an escape plan that you're just trying to figure out and to try and buy insurance. You want to mm -hmm. come up with that, that plan and that, you know, that protection and hope you never have to use it. But you don't want to be thinking about it in that moment. And so that's a lot of these things. We don't, we don't know the duration. This could be 12 months, 12 years, 50 years. And there are a lot of different form factors that it could take. But when something does shift, are you going to be staring going, I didn't do anything to prepare for this. What am I going to do? Or do you say, yeah, you know, I put some money into some tangible physical assets, you know, things like a some coins that I can hold so I can at least in an interim period while there's this chaos and this is all getting sorted out that I have the ability to continue to live my life. Do, did I get myself a, a house for, you know, there's hyperinflation, you know, my assets, my stocks, all these things are going to go up, but that cash is going to be worthless. So it's, it's really rethinking your approach to sort of your entire financial portfolio. Time now for the shocking stat of the year. Well, as expected, there are numerous candidates, but I'm choosing one that despite being in evidence since 2020, 2020, it seems to have come to the forefront this year, especially the last several months, because of the impact on other areas of concern, like housing or the availability of healthcare. I'm referring to the massive increase in population due to record immigration and the out of control issuing of student and work visas. And in case you're not familiar with student and work visas, I call it out of control because the government has no idea how many are issued until after the fact. So there can be no preparation for the influx of people coming in, especially in terms of housing. The government has no idea. So it's no surprise that the rest of us don't. But when the numbers came through, I think it's safe to say it shocked just about everyone. Let's start with the raw numbers. Canada passed the 40 million mark in population I think it was June 20th this year. But since that time, another 745,000 plus have been added. That's just like six months. In the third quarter alone, another 430,000 people. Now look, we've got a record low birth rate, averaging 1.4 children per woman. That's well below the 2.1 needed to maintain a population. So we obviously need immigration. But we're also finding out that's only part of the equation. We should have taken into account the record immigration targets on housing and other infrastructure like healthcare. And again, but the problem can be argued that it's really the temporary visas that are causing problems, temporary work and student visas and asylum seekers. So here's the number, truly shocking, third quarter only. 312,758 temporary work and student visas along with asylums were granted in that third quarter. Wow. I mean, the amount of housing starts, which averaged something like 172,000 per year, isn't going to get close to keeping up with the demand that comes from that kind of an increase in population. And that's why it's my shocking stat of the year. Been looking forward to chatting with Ozzy Jurek. You can find him at ozbuzz.ca. But talking to him about, you know, like, this guy just lives real estate. I got to tell you that. Uh, he's an exciting man. But I'll tell you, he just focuses on the real estate markets. Ozzy, great to have you with us. I hope you had a great Christmas and looking forward to next year. But before we go to next year, as I've been saying on the show, let's have a look back. What jumps out at you when you think about 223 and the real estate market? Well, just in general terms, we had the highest rates in 20 years. Uh, and we had, uh, we were supposed to have a real terrible uh, thing going on in, in many areas, but retail actually outpaced the low expectation of all the naysayers. We, we are having investment sectors. We're building hotels and resorts. They're bouncing back. Data centers, pharma, life houses, healthcare, even self-storage, 
all doing well. Industrial is down, but still much stronger than predicted. And real estate sales are down below the 10-year average uh, quite a bit, but prices are still hanging in there. So all in all, not that bad. And not certainly not as bad as people were fearing, you know, going in. Although I've got to, every time I say this, I've got to juxtapose that. It is a different market in the U.S. And sometimes we get their news and it sort of uh, overshadows ours, especially their news. The negative in the commercial real estate market has been huge, uh, you know, as an example. So it's it's very difficult, you know, chatting with Michael Levy about that, that, you know, you hear something in the Federal Reserve. It doesn't necessarily translate directly to what's happening in Canada. And I think your point here is kind of interesting that alternative investment sectors, you know, did okay. Yeah, you know, and, and against all the naysayers, that's the yeah. point. You know, we, we've been uh, going into this year with great trepidation, of which we probably do every single year. But uh, there are uh, something that has made the story of the year, though. Well, let's talk about that. You know, I mean, there's so many things to choose from. But when you close your eyes, you go, you know what? I think this is the biggest story that we should all be aware of. What is it for you? What's your top story of the year? Well, you know, it's uh, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's one word. It's government, right? I mean, Ronald Reagan says the nine most terrifying words in English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Well, they were helping all year long. <laughs> well, I, I can start with in some areas. Obviously, we're going across the country, so depending on where you're at. But, man, you look at the property price hikes, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, right away, obviously a big contribution for homeowners uh, who might be struggling with their mortgage rates, too, at the same time. But, man, the cost of just owning that property, getting someone in to fix it or to help out with it, maintain it, man, that that was big time. Yeah, and it seems to be still going up. You know, I don't really know what exactly is the 3.1% inflation, but it certainly doesn't apply to real estate. I mean, if you look federally, the federal government gave us 10 rate increases. Has And to me, it's not so much the rate itself. 5%, 6%, we've had that for years. But the fastest increase in rates in 10 months, you know, 10 times increase. So we have still have the highest stress test. We're banning foreign buyers. With taxes, we never even understood the underused housing tax, the foreign buyers tax, you know, the, you know, the whole idea of migration at 100 year levels and so on and so on. The government federally certainly was in our soup. Well, I mean, and this is one of the things that's so ironic is uh, the government sit there and they complain about affordable housing. Then you look at some of the municipal levy taxes and costs. You look at the federal level. You look at, depending on the province for sure, but I know people out in British Columbia are where they have something called a property purchase tax that just gets taxed on for like no reason other than the government wants the money, but it adds significant costs there. And I want to come back again uh, when you look at property taxes or the cost of fees and permits. Well, you see, the, the, this is it. I mean, you had federally, apart from federal government, we hear this rumor, they also contemplate new taxes like wealth taxes and eliminated capital gain exemption. But the city property taxes in 2023 went up 10.3%, and they just voted an increase of 7.4% in 2024. I thought our inflation rate was 3.1%. Eh? So, yeah. And the average cost and fees and permits added 27% of the cost of any building. So you have an $800,000 condo, over 200000 of that is government fees. I mean, the, the, the city just a couple of months ago tripled the water development cost fee, quadrupled the liquid waste fee, created a new fee for parks, and so on and so on. And, and so the, the point being, if whatever municipality you're in, you want to look at some of these things. We have a tendency, just like we do with income tax or taxes, we start with income tax. We don't go further a lot of times to the litany of other taxes that are added on. But, uh, you know, given that affordable housing is such a, a big time topic and that also spreads into the rental side of things. I mean, we need more supply. I don't think that's a debate anymore. Well, and, you know, I'm not saying that the government sits around the table and saying, how can we zap the population? No, I think with the, it always has the best intention, but the road to hell is paved with best intentions. Because, as you say, speculation tax, vacant tax, the new Airbnb Act and anti's short-term rental act. I mean, what are, you take a city like Osoyos or Penticton, 50,000 people in the summer, how are they going to deal with their short-term rental ban? And then the new transit-oriented development where you now can build a 20-story tower close to any bus stop or SkyTrain, which has huge implication for people that already own real estate there as their taxes go up. So the government is everywhere. 
Well, I'm not quite as kind as you are, as you heard the shocking stat talking about the massive explosion in population. I am critical that they never seem to give a thought about now they're talking housing supply all of a sudden. Are you, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it really is. Are you kidding me? Well, I certainly wish uh, all the listeners a great uh, slide into the new year in 2024. And, you know, real estate uh, is, is sort of a strange thing. And, and we have all these forecasts again, like we had last year. And I think we may have a better year than people think. I also would like to extend an invitation to all the listeners that are interested in real estate and join our real estate action group. It's at reag.ca. On the website, reag.ca, you get the sign-up fees waived. Your spouse comes in free. You can bring a 16-year-old or older child free. You have 12 monthly meetings. You have Action Express full days. We teach you how to write an offer, understand how assignments work, and all those wonderful things in real estate where you're personally, I'm going to be there for most of the time and just have a ball. So go so, to react.ca and say, Michael Campbell. Hey, Ozzy, I, you know, I want you to go out, have a fabulous uh, New Year's, the rest of the week, all of that stuff. And I look forward to chatting next week. And I really, really look forward to seeing you at the World Outlook Conference. So much to talk about. I'm getting ready for it and we'll have an exciting presentation. I have no doubt of that, but uh, we're banning later hosen this year. Ozzy, thanks very much. <laughs> Healthcare was in the news far too regularly this year for the wrong reasons, and not the dedicated people who work within the system, but the system itself that kept people waiting on, uh, you know, for treatment. In fact, killed people waiting for treatment. Well, Dr. Brian Day, I think, is this country's foremost advocate for patient rights, rights to get timely treatment, uh, you know, in a medically acceptable amount of time. Well, we asked him about private care and the history of that and really the insanity of the current situation. The, the BC Appeal Court said in their ruling that the court recognizes that the provincial law that they're upholding, they're doing so at a cost of real hardship and suffering. They use those phrases to many British Columbians. They said unequivocally, overruling the lower court judge, that many British Columbians are dying on waitlists. Now, this is uh, not something I would be proud of saying I'm glad they upheld that. Mm -hmm. So this, but, but perhaps even more um, serious to me is that the judges that have decided not to listen to the arguments um, on whether, you know, basically whether BC residents should have the same rights that court gave to Quebecers in 2005, those judges are all exempt from the rules. Federal employees are exempt. They are allowed. I mean, our, I have received checks from the federal government for the treatment of judges, and they are exempt. They're all federal employees. And, and, um, and you know, there are other ways. I mean, I, I don't resent it at all, but um, our former Premier Horgan, when he got a cancer, um, was treated very quickly and appropriately, and um, and he deserved to be treated quickly and appropriately. But we know from data in our trial that some women with with serious cancers, like cervical cancers, only thirteen percent are getting treated in the maximum safe time. And this is what has been upheld. Now, the other problem, of course, is that. This is an, we, we feel this is an infringement on the rights of residents here, because if you come from another province, you have those rights. So we, you know, I, yesterday I operated on a young man from Ontario who was told he was going to have to wait 18 months. He was a hockey player and came out to BC and he's ha he can do what a BC resident cannot do. And this is, you know, this, this doesn't make sense. And most of all, I think, we are unique on the planet in Canada in having laws against private health insurance. Uh, that's unique on the whole planet. There are so many aspects there. I want to just come back to one is that what kills me is when I hear the politicians immediately say it proves it's a universal system. We all have equal access. Money isn't determinant. Are you kidding me? I mean, seriously, this is when I said I was outraged. I know for a fact uh, cabinet ministers have uh, jumped. You just gave a couple of examples there. Uh, all I have to do, though, is break the law in a serious crime so I can get into a federal prison if I've got something serious. As a federal prisoner, you can jump ahead of everyone listening here today. 
Uh, it's just outrageous, the BS that they've peddled in terms of, oh, we all have equal access. Mike, Michael, we have had two leaders of the NDP treated privately at our clinic. I won't name them, of course, but, but that's a reality. We had a, a trial in which those opposing us in court were, had been treated at our clinic privately. Um, they, we've had people protesting on the lawns of our clinic who have been treated privately at our clinic. That, that is the hypocrisy that goes on. And, you know, about 30 years ago, I wrote an article in the Vancouver Sun called The Hypocritical Oath. And mm -hmm. this is what, it's still going on. And, um, and, and as you alluded to, the wealthy don't, don't need it. It's, it, it. The wealthy can go down to the United States, to the Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic. They always have done and always will. What we have is not working. People, in 2005, the Supreme Court of Canada, in granting Quebecers the right to um, private insurance, said unequivocally, unequivocally, Canadians are suffering and dying on wait lists. You cannot promise healthcare, fail to deliver it, and then make it unlawful for a citizen in a free country to extricate themselves from that pain and suffering and, and death, risk of death. So, um, but in their wisdom, the, the, our politicized Supreme Court, and it's m more politicized than the U.S. Supreme Court, obviously, has um, taken the position that what's good for us is not good for you. It is astounding to see this. I mean, this is, a, and I said right at the outset, it upsets me. So, but it is astounding that the state is in the way of people realizing, you know, that they're suffering and the state is saying, no, you can't alleviate it. They're dying. No, you can't prevent that. Well, it, to me, it's, it's fear of decision-making by politicians. You know, a few years ago, I was in a debate in, with, in Quebec with a, a provincial health minister um, and at the end of the debate, he came up to me and said, you know, Brian, off the record, and he's no longer a minister, so I mm -hmm. uh, off the record, um, every health minister in the country wants the courts to, wants you to win in the courts because mm -hmm. they're afraid of this topic. They're afraid yes. of it. It's called, people refer to it as the third, you know, electric rail of, of politics that they don't want to touch it. But as I said, we are unique in the world in this. In, in this, And the other thing that we're unique amongst developed countries, the OECD, in, is that we, we give our hospitals global budgets every year so that every patient that goes to a hospital in Canada is using up the hospital's revenue. So guess what the chief financial officer wants to do when... The budget's getting tight. Stop treating patients. And this in every other system, so in New Zealand and Australia and in Britain and, and in the other, other countries in the OECD, when a patient goes to a hospital, even a public hospital, the state pays the hospital money for that treatment. Mm -hmm. So a hospital that doesn't treat patients um, has no revenue. And it has revenue in, a, in those countries. In, 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 in Canada, um, we, if we made that simple change, which is nothing to do, and, and actually um, Dr. Les Vitesi led a program to do that um, a decade or so ago, and it was very successful, but it was a victim of its own success. A subsequent government um, canned it because it was, it was obviously initially when you've allowed you know, hundreds of thousands to, to climb on the wait list, you, it's going to cost you a bit of money to get rid of the, the backlog. Um, but, but it works to have the money follow the patient. The um, appeal court in British Columbia, another thing they said is that the, the wait times are in British Columbia flow from government rationing of healthcare. Mm -hmm. It's and that it is purposefully under designed to 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 achieve the goal of fis, fiscal goals. And this was this is the ruling that our current government is kind of saying it's wonderful for us that they said that. Well, yeah. no, it, no, it isn't.
Let's go live to the trading desk now. Victor Dare's been in the markets. He doesn't probably want me to tell you how long, but let's just say the word decades comes to mind. Victor's been uh, heads of commodity firms or trading firms, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, spends every day, he looks analytically at what's going on in the world of finance. That's why I'm pleased to get pick his brain about what he thought was the biggest story of 2023 and maybe one that didn't make the headlines as often as uh, obviously interest rates did, for example. Vic, let's let's get right to it. Tell me what you think maybe the biggest unreported story was from the last year. Well, when you told me what you were going to ask, uh, I thought about it and thought about it. And I thought, you know, to me, there's so many good stories. But the one that's maybe, as you say, kind of out of the headlines is what the hell happened in China? <laughs> I mean, you go back 40 years ago, China was one of the poorest countries in the world. The last 20 years have been on an incredible roll. I'm talking about, you know, emerging and the, 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 the economy booming and that sort of thing. And they're, you know, people are talking about, are they going to go past the United States and all that sort of thing? Just been on a hell of a roll. And then, you know, things changed. And what I guess... I can look at it in just stock market terms. You know, the Chinese stock market and all of the stock markets of the world were lower in October of last year. And then everybody came out of the gate pretty strong this year, including China. But then in the spring, since the spring, the Chinese stock market's just basically gone straight down while the rest of the world has more or less gone straight up. And I thought, what the hell happened? (laughs) Well, I'll ask you that specifically, but I want to remind people that, boy, when we were, uh, you know, we had come out of COVID or the lockdown, et cetera. But the big story was wait till China comes out of their lockdowns. It's going to be explosive in terms of demand, in terms of, you know, uh, impact on commodities as just one example there. And it really didn't manifest. Yeah, that was exactly it. Uh, that once the lockdown, and the lockdowns in China, as we know, anecdotally at least, were much more severe than in the West. So once the lockdowns are are, are over with, you know, and the the agitation, like the street demonstrations and that, were happening toward the end of last year, and it almost seemed as though the, the top guys, the authorities, caved a bit to public demand and took the locks off the doors. But the thing was, nothing happened. The, the Chinese <clears throat> domestic demand just wasn't there. And I puzzled over why that has been. Uh, we showed up in different ways. Certainly the stock market was weaker. Foreign direct investment in China was negative for the first time in 25 years. What that simply means is foreigners, instead of putting money into China to build factories and this and that, took money out. And I'm thinking that there was people inside of China also that were getting their money out of the country. And you could say, well, why is that? If you get right down to it, Mike, I think it was kind of the people realizing after the lockdowns what kind of a government they had over their heads that was the kind of people that would you know, weld them into their apartments and that sort yeah. of thing. So people became wary of spending their money to, you know, the government was trying to increase, encourage domestic consumption but the people weren't reacting and i think the people were reacting to their idea of the government that was bossing them around and i think again the reverberations are felt in the global economy felt uh, in the canadian economy in terms of demand for commodities etc excuse me vic let me uh the other thing that you've been chronicling for i guess it's this is off the top of my head so sorry just over two years you know the problem the problems it might be three years in their property market have also come back to haunt them we had the first blush of terrible problems the losses that kind of stuff well as we said at the time, you know, quoting Dennis Gartman, there's never just one cockroach. So, man, it seems to have, uh, again, escalated, which is going to play also into consumer buying in, the, in China when you've got that kind of fear hanging over your head. Yeah, I'll go back to the last uh, World Outlook conference we had before COVID. I guess that was February of 2020. And one of the questions I posed to, to the folks that were listening was, you know, I keep wondering if we're going to see a repeat of what happened in Japan happen in China. And what I was talking about was the leverage. You know, here was a country that hadn't had a stock market until 30 years ago, and everything was so locked down. And now the people were going crazy that the real estate market was by far and away the most important thing to the economy. And as as like the rest of the world, you know, there was a lot of leverage being used. 
too much, it turns out, apparently. And not just the, the, the deleveraging, but, you know, the, the, the wrong way demographic trends. Yep. Since this year, we've seen unemployment among the young people in China. They just stopped reporting it because it was getting so horrible. You know, so there's there's a number of things that were the result of the call it communist policies where they're trying to macro manage the economy that just seem to have backfired. And the people are, are, are keeping their their money in their pockets. You know, that's their response. And, and another influence is geopolitically. You see some level of reproachment with the U.S., uh, maybe a little more dovish talk. But I mean, let's finish with this. We're not done with China, of course. But Taiwan's got elections in the next two weeks, I think it is. Two weeks from now, yeah. So, and, I mean, <laughs> th- there's, and there's two parties. The one party that's in power now is kind of, we want to maintain our sovereignty. The other party is not so much we want to capitulate, but, you know, let's, let's maybe get along better with the Chinese and maybe they won't invade us or whatever. Uh, and that's, that's two course of a, of a, of a yeah. differentiation between the two of them. Why does all of this matter? Well, on a couple of fronts, China is a big part of the world economy now. And if their economy is slowing down, the global economy is going to slow down. And certainly for a lot of us, we're looking at China as a market to export commodities to. If they're taking less commodities, that's going to have a, a dramatic effect on commodity prices everywhere. Well, I want to invite people to make a habit of going to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca, where you can find uh, his weekly updates, charts, etc. And of course, he'll be with us at the World Outlook Conference, February 2nd and 3rd. So you'll get a chance to uh, chat with Vic, share some ideas with him. Good stuff as always, Vic. Appreciate it and a happy new year to you and Gina. Well, thanks, Mike, and happy new year to you, of course, and to all our listeners. And just to remind you, you can get the full interview of any one of our guests by simply going to mikesmoneytalks.ca. You go into the archives, easy to scroll down. But I want to finish with Lobo Tigra because he deals with a challenge that we face all the time. I feel it personally, is that the intermingling of politics and economics and finance is just so overwhelming as we see more intrusive government. But there's a real key for investors. You can't let your own personal biases get in the way. And Lobo does a great job of giving some advice of how to approach the markets. Uh, you know, I'm not above politics myself. I'm on the libertarian end of the spectrum. And I, I have my druthers for how I think things should be done. And I object very much, you know, state interference in the economy. But my role as the independent speculator, as the due diligence guy for yeah. my audience is not to you know ramble on about politics or try to convince people to save the world my way or, or adopt loboism or you know whatever I believe. My role is to help you make money, and you know it's so again it's it's not that I'm I'm throwing the ethics out the window. It's that I need to look at what's actually happening in the marketplace, not what I wish would yes. happen. Or like like take the the green agenda and the electrification. That is such a huge global trend for all resource investors affecting everything you know the, the least affected might be gold but even silver is affected because of the solar panels it's it is also industrial not just a monetary metal so and never mind copper lithium and all these other things that are so profoundly impacted by this agenda so i i get pushback from readers it's like oh well you know they sh- they shouldn't tesla shouldn't even exist it got government grants and subsidies and it, you're, you're fine it's true it never mind that our goal isn't to beat up on Tesla or to right all wrongs like Don Quixote tilting at the windmills. Our goal is to make money. And the fact is that governments around the world are pushing this big time, whether they should or they shouldn't, they are. And you know what? It's not just those evil, you know, dark cloaked powers that be behind the hidden curtains. The people out there, our dear beloved fellow brother human beings, they want this, especially the younger generations. These electric cars are popular. The consumer wants them, whether they should or they shouldn't, whether it makes sense or not. That is a market reality. And so if your goal is to make money, you can't just say, well, I'm going to check out what's happening because of what I want to have happen. That's not how you make money. Uh, I'm going a bit of a rant again for you, Mike. But I, so well, that's a key point. Let me just interrupt for a second. Because that is, I would say that's, in fact, the skill you need as, a, as an investor. I mentioned that we did a coming bull market in commodities. Was ex- You've just elaborated exactly why we did that in February of 220. And it was because 
it doesn't matter what I think about it. It doesn't matter that I have concerns that there's no way, by the way, the electrical grid can handle it. Uh, there's no way, as you alluded to just a bit earlier, but I mean, the lithium, the cobalt, the, you know, for EVs, the copper in every aspect of it, you know, we're not close to that stuff. It doesn't matter if they're going to do it anyways. And, and the right. way you described and, it, I think and, it's and if you had any doubts, sorry, let me yeah. jump in and agree with you because if it's reasonable to have doubts, particularly you have a global pandemic, you might think that reason would set in a little bit and they might step back and say, oh, well, this agenda is very expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, good, it's not just going to cost a bunch of money. It's going to make the global economy less efficient. You know, maybe we should take a step back and, and settle, deal with the pandemic first. No, they double down. That was all the more reason. And then a war. And you think, okay, you know, we're on the edge of potential World War III. There's there's a land war, a kinetic war in Europe, you know, for God's sake. You know, maybe we should take a step back and think about, you know, putting extra burdens on the global economy. No, nope, we're going to double down. This is all the more reason. We've got to have energy independence, right? So all the more reason to... <laughs> well, one of my favorite, one uh, of my favorite quotes. Sorry, one of my favorite quotes last year was John Kerry arriving early, you know, in the Ukraine war and saying, "I hope it doesn't impact our climate change goals." And I'm going, exactly. "People are getting bombed." Exactly. So, anybody who thought that, okay, you know, reason will prevail at yeah. some point, or reality will step in and and they will take a step back, uh, clearly they have shown that that's not going to happen. You know, until they push that you know, the train goes off the cliff or, you know, that level of reality, you know, maybe. And you know what? I actually think for all the things that we say can't happen, this is, this makes me very bullish on the necessary minerals because I I actually think the NIMBY thinking that has plagued the mining industry for so long or the extractive industries in, in general, I think that will cave. I mean, at some point push will come to shove and people will realize, well, if we want, you know, batteries and solar panels and electric cars, we have to mine the metals yep. that go into these things. And and I think people will realize in the first place, there's just not enough. We've got to permit these mines, you know, the nice mines, the better companies that, that make an effort to do things in a cleaner way. I think they will get permitted, even in first world countries that really would rather not have it. And the other aspect is if you push all the mines off to the third world, you're going to degrade the environment more because there are looser environmental standards in most of those countries. You know, they're making efforts, but it, you know, it's clearly easier to get, uh, let's say an operation approved that has lower environmental standards in some desperate country in Africa than it is say in Canada or never mind in Europe, in Western Europe. So to the savvy investor, again, whose, whose goal isn't to make political points, but to make money, you look at the companies that are positioned to benefit from this. Um, and, and I do think that the green agenda will ultimately trump NIMBY thinking. And we will see projects that currently might seem unpermittable become permittable. And that change in value could be huge. For a speculator here, we're not talking about a you know a safe investment. I'm talking about for a speculator to try to position yourself where the wind is blowing, where the, where the hockey puck is going to go quote your great Canadian philosopher, Wayne Gretzky, right? There, there, this is an example of some things in this space where you can see very clearly where that puck is going. And I think there's money to be made going there. Time now for the Goofy Award. The Goofy of the Year, I should have said. And I'm sure you have your own nominees, come on. How about one of the leaders and chief spokesperson of Just Stop Oil getting a pension from Shell Oil? And who doesn't get a good laugh at the spectacle of King Charles, uh, Bill Gates, or John Kerry, and the rest of the cop gang lecturing us little people on cutting back our carbon footprint? And the raft of goofy government expenditures. Come on, I'm sure that's on some people's lift. Of course, it's financed by our tax dollars. I mean, the Prime Minister stay in a $6,000 a night suite in London for the Queen's funeral. I guess $3,000 a night just wouldn't cut it. How about the Governor General, though, spending $801,418 tax dollars, taking 32 guests to a four-day Frankfurt book fair, staying in five-star hotels, including the Ritz-Carlton. And that's not the first time, by the way, the Governor General has uh, spent, let's say, lavishly tax dollars. She took 45 people on a trip to Dubai with cost taxpayers 1.3 well, 1. 
million. I'll leave it at that, including $80,000 in food costs during the flight alone. And that didn't include beverages. And one of my personal favorites this year, $139,000 spent by Canadian diplomats on circus tickets, concerts, and galas. But maybe the biggest goofy in all that is so few Canadians seem to care. Maybe they don't work very hard for their money that they send to Ottawa on taxes, so they don't mind. Then there's the CRA employees who join thousands of others in defrauding the CERB program. 185 have been terminated so far, which the Auditor General, by the way, estimates the fraud for CERB was $4.7 billion, but added there's more investigations to become that be done. Hey, and what about that ongoing saga, the $54 million ArriveCan app? Highly questionable, make that inexplicable multi-million dollar contracts that the government refuses to answer questions about. I mean, there's just so many other issues or so many other potential goofy winners. How about honoring the Nazi in the House of Commons? Come on. Uh, how about, well, that was on the heels of the government giving hundreds of thousands to one of these great anti-Semitics, um, uh, you know, an absolute level of hate, psychotic hate, I think, directed at Jewish people. Uh, they gave him uh, over $100,000 to do racism workshops. Well, that's a beauty. I mean, there's, so, there's no shortage of goofies. You probably have several candidates yourself. But for me, I'm going to go to arguably the most confusing response to the atrocities committed by Hamas on October 7th. Not just the deniers who say the rape, the parading of bodies, murder of children didn't happen. Oh, my God. My goofy of the year is the response, or should I say lack of response, for numerous women's groups. I mean, I'm talking like the United Nations Entity for Gender Equality and Women Empowerment, UN Committee on Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, the International Me Too Movement, uh, the Arab Feminist Union, Equality Now was founded to end violence against women, but nothing. But topping my list are the numerous Queers for Palestine groups who support Hamas and are anti-Israel, despite the fact that in Gaza and the West Bank, gay and transgender individuals face extreme persecution. I mean, they could get lengthy prison service. They could eat, uh, serve, uh, terms, rather. They could even face execution. As Palestinian scholar at the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem states, the people of Palestine will not allow a single homosexual in our land. Such perversions bring the wrath of Allah. And yet, so many in the LGBTQ plus community are anti-Israel, the only Middle East country that respects gay people, that allows gay marriage. But instead, they are anti-Israel, they support Hamas. My goodness. That truly deserves the description. You can't make this stuff up. That's all the time we have this week. I'm really looking forward to having you join us you know, right through 2024, but especially at the World Outlook Conference. In the meantime, keep checking in to mikesmoneytalks.ca or moneytalks, mikesmoneytalks.ca. Also, Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook and, of course, Money Talks tweets. We can keep you up to date. And I can wish you all the best for you, your family, your friends in 2024. May it be a great one. Thanks for listening.